The second half of September 2008 has seen tremendous volatility in the U.S. financial markets, with major losses leading to proposals for expansive government intervention. We now join College of Business faculty members Beverly Marshall, Associate Professor in the Department of Finance, John Jahara, Colonial Bank Professor and Head of the Department of Finance, and Dan Gropper, David and Meredith Luck Professor of Economics and Associate Dean, for a discussion of current events in the financial markets. Well, one of the things to, to add my own opinion to this analysis is that when you saw the Federal Reserve pick up with that situation in time where they had raised short-term interest rates, putting pressure on the market, and helped burst that tech bubble, they then followed that by pushing interest rates down over time through the early part of 2001, 2002, pushing them down to where in 2003 and 2004 we saw interest rates that were very, very low, right? Real rates, that is the nominal interest rate of about 1% minus a 1% inflation rate gave you a real borrowing cost of about zero. And they kept those interest rates low for a long period of time trying to stimulate the economy. Now they did that, but that also set off the housing boom that then leads to some of the pressure that I believe we're seeing now. So though uh, I wouldn't claim that I have any particular knowledge to do any better. I would blame some of this at the Federal Reserve because of both a philosophy of first saying that we should get involved in trying to push interest rates up to try to correct what we see as some problems with asset prices, then trying to push interest rates down, trying to stimulate the economy, then trying to raise them a little bit later as they did uh, in the last year and a half trying to push them up, trying to slow things down. And then in this year, you've seen them again drastically lowering them, where now we have interest rates down about 2% on short-term money, with inflation running now between 4 and 5%, depending on how you want to measure it. If you drop mm -hmm. out food and energy costs, you can get something lower. The core inflation rate maybe is about 25 3%, depending on measure it now. But even if you do that, you're still talking about real short-term interest rates that are negative or almost zero. That is tremendously stimulative. So I would first say that the Federal Reserve is causing some turmoil in the financial <laughs> markets, not only by interest rate policy, uh, but also by adopting a whole philosophy that says they should be involved in trying to stabilize the economy instead of doing what I would suggest they do first, which is try to stabilize prices. Well, the other thing to be considered, too, is the fact that the U.S. has always been a safe haven financially. There's a huge global savings glut. A lot of foreign investors use U.S. financial markets. Mm -hmm. So the other thing going on is that there's huge demand for U.S. government securities, which also keep interest rates very low in this country, mm -hmm. in addition to Fed Federal Reserve estimates. So we do have lower interest rates. Um, you know, which has contributed to mm -hmm. uh, the American dream of owning a home. It's not a bad right. thing, um, but uh, yeah, I think well, absolutely. A, I think that's a good point that Beverly made. You know, lest we overreact too much to this. Now, certainly, that's a bad situation. The U.S. has something that a lot of countries around the world don't mm -hmm. have. We have a stable uh, political system. Yes. We are coming into an election. Uh, we don't have riots in the street or some uh, that enable someone to take office. We actually have something of an orderly election. I mean, you can have hanging chads and all that kind of stuff. But for the large part, compared to a lot of countries in the world, we have a very stable uh, political system that 
makes us an attractive place for uh, foreign investment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, unless we see some tremendous instability, I don't know that that perception of the U.S. will change because of this. It may raise some questions, but uh, also the other things like the trade deficit, there are a lot of do dollars looking for a home somewhere, too. Well, and I, I would add that in this global financial market, money travels around the planet with increasing speed, uh, and there are many other places where investors are now looking to get a return. So if the Absolutely. U.S. money, or excuse me, if the U.S. markets are not performing as well as, as global investors would like, it doesn't take very long to shift that money from here to Europe, to Asia, uh, to the Middle East. Mm -hmm. That money flows extremely fast. And in fact, uh, the ability of the Federal Reserve then to really have a tremendous effect in stabilizing the U.S. economy is not as strong an effect as the Fed used to have. They just simply don't have as much power. Would you agree with that? Well, I, I do think we do have a global economy, and there is an awful lot that is happening around the world. Um, I, um, I guess I believe that it just depends on what uh, our, um, our American consumers' confidence level is on the, on, the, on the Fed and the Treasury, their ability to resolve this um, situation. I do believe we have that ability to, um, to have that confidence. Uh, unfortunately, right now, I think, we are in a, an election year, so there's a little m more uncertainty out there as to how quickly we can get some of these measures through uh, Congress for the Treasury to make the necessary actions. But I think the powers are there. Um, we also do have the power to create more of a global met meltdown, however, <laughs> if, right. those, if those measures don't come into place. Um, I do think it's important that the U.S. Um, get this resolved as soon as possible mm -hmm. and that Congress make moves to... to to follow the um, advice of the Treasury and, and, and get things approved. John, what do you want to add to that? Well, I think, you know, some of the early actions in the last few days, we have brought some uh, resurgence in the market, of course. We mm -hmm. saw sure. that. Uh, you know, we were up 400 points a couple of days and back off and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you look at the Dow Jones average, we're still doing okay right there. Uh, I think longer run, there are some concerns as to how some of these uh, actions will play out. Uh, let's take the extreme position in the markets. It looks like our immediate reaction is for the government, taxpayers, to come around and guarantee all types of loans and uh, mortgages and take on all the bad debt. So let's take it to an extreme. And I know we were talking about this earlier today. Mm -hmm. If you take it to the extreme and every security is ultimately backed by the U.S. government, then guess what? Everyone gets the risk-free rate. There is no risk. And I just don't think, you know, for a well-functioning uh, market system, you can eliminate all the risk. Um, mm -hmm. And also, there is, you know, some people use the term with, uh, with the government. Uh, some, of the, some of the proposed legislation today would have the, our government take really ownership positions in financial institutions mm -hmm. that they help. Well, you know, in, in certain parts of the world, that's known as nationalization of an industry, which... You, you know, think that's it, a good idea? Um, uh, no, okay, that's my first. I do not. I agree with any you. more than I would think that uh, what the Venezuelan efforts at nationalization have really helped their economy prosper. Absolutely. Well, one of the other things I, to add my opinion uh, to this this part of the discussion is one of the things that I think is particularly of concern is now the Federal Reserve 
and the government have gotten into sort of picking some winners and losers. Mm -hmm. So they're going to work on some things to try to take care of Bear Stearns. They're going to get Le they're going to let Lehman Brothers go. They're going to work behind the scenes to try to take care of some other institutions to try to help facilitate some mergers and some additional credit extensions. And they're not going to do this for other firms. So this kind of behavior leads to uncertainty in financial markets. And so mm -hmm. the markets can't look at things and sort of figure out, well, is the federal government going to help this time or are they going to let things go? And that increasing uncertainty, I think, is, is a pretty uh, difficult kind of precedent to get in and set. I, I think that's problematic. Well, I think it's important to understand a little bit more about why they didn't let AIG fail, because mm -hmm. I think that is, um, that it was the news on Tuesday, I guess, right after we saw Lehman Brothers. And again, that has to deal with something called credit default swaps. And I'm not sure how familiar our audience is with try what to give us, yeah. credit default swaps are. But they are insurance-like contracts. Um, that are available to cover losses on various securities are used in mortgage markets, corporate debt, municipal bonds, and those types of securities. So it's okay. an insurance-like contract. Um, but it's different in that when you buy homeowner's insurance or car insurance or medical mm -hmm. insurance, there's a lot of regulation and reserve requirements and things like that that go with being an insurance company. And the credit default market is an unregulated market, the size of which is somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three times the size of the U U.S. stock market. So it's a very mm. large market. and um, Trillions of dollars. Yes, trillions of dollars. I've, I've seen figures estimating it at $45 trillion in mid-2007 and up to $60 trillion um, by the end of 2007. So again, some of the large players in that market uh, include J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Citibank, Bank of America, and Wachovia. And um, again, AIG was the world's largest issuer of these credit default swaps. And so one of the problems with the credit default swaps is they were sort of like the collateralized debt obligations, traded multiple times without the assurance that the person who was holding, you know, the liability could pay. So hmm. AIG was one okay. who was the largest insurer, had the, the largest losses on the write down of their seed. Uh, collateralized debt swap holdings, and they could have caused the failure of a whole lot of other banks as a result of that. So that is again why, is my understanding, why um, they had to bail out AIG. So the concern Sorry. is here a ripple effect that if they but, let these guys mm, go, absolutely. this then peels into the next financial institution, into the next one, and the next one, and so on. Absolutely. And so that was that was the reason that was different than Lehman. Um, because the, 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 the shift could have continued to be like a domino's effect, okay, into other, uh, into other banks, hmm. since and they were holding most of that. This is like we've seen in the banking industry, uh, what, in the 70s when Continental Illinois mm -hmm. failed. Uh, you know, there were some difficult times in 74 when we had sort of a real estate problem then for those of you of an age to remember 74. And at that time, they bailed out this large bank in Chicago, but not smaller banks. And so people started referring to that as the too big to fail doctrine. Too big to fail doctrine. And it's really yes. a matter of weighing the, you know, the cost. It, it, what's it going to cost us? Is there more cost to let it fail than to save it? So it becomes almost a, just a simple cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. And hopefully someone does a good job mm -hmm. there. And again, in AIG, obviously our policymakers in Washington determined that the cost of it failing would, be, would far exceed the cost of saving it.
Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and bringing back the 70s, I remember the 70s rather fondly. My hair was longer and curlier then than it is now. Uh, but it does raise the question uh, a little bit, and John, maybe you can expound on this a little bit more, about putting the current uh, turmoil into some sort of perspective. We've seen these major shifts up and down over the last week, major losses, then major gains. How does this compare with previous uh, crises? Well, so far, well, it depends on how you're measuring it. If you're looking in terms of, say, the Dow Jones average, uh, in 74, when we had this crisis, uh, within, that, within a calendar year, interest rates doubled and the Dow lost half its value. And then you go all the way back to the crash in 1929, the market lost 90% of its value. And what's interesting, if you go back to the time of the crash in 29, it took nearly 25 years for the Dow to rise back to the mm -hmm. level where it had been. So, you know, there are some of these situations, uh, like 1929, took a long time to fully recover. Uh, the 1974 situation, the recovery was not that long. We, we had a number of things. We had the REIT crisis in the South and mm -hmm. parts of the country, and then the Middle East oil embargo and another of other external shocks to our system. But we came out of it mm -hmm. uh, okay. You know, the late 70s were kind of rough, though, with very high interest rates. and. Um, Oh, yeah, to break out of that cycle mm -hmm. of high interest rates, stagflation, and sort of get mm -hmm. the economy moving again, we had a whole shift at the Federal Reserve mm -hmm. with Paul Volcker coming in and helping restore confidence, and then we reap the benefits of that through much of the 80s. That's right. Mm -hmm. that's, so that's, so that's a good point. I do want to remind our audience there that we do have a call-in number, and for those of you on Embedent now, there are some chats uh, there's the chat room, and we have a few questions coming in on the chat room now. The uh, 800 number is 1-800-446-0368. That's 1-800-446-0368. And then you can join the chat on Embinet. Now, this question has come in from Christopher Baker uh, down in South Alabama, and he says that we've learned that there are some strings uh, attached when there's government assistance uh, in Goldman and uh, Morgan now becoming banks. Is this a confidence booster? Um, are, are the strings confidence boosters? Well, uh, by allowing them to, to do more banking activities, one could argue it makes them safer through diversification. Uh, you know, if we go back again to the Depression, we had something known as the Glass-Steagall Act right. that separated banking from investment activities. That was largely eliminated with the Financial Modernization Act a few years ago but still, we had a lot of banks doing traditional banking function, and we had the big five investment banks with two survivors today mm -hmm. doing traditional investment banking function. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw an article the other day that uh, speculated that had we allowed them to have been well diversified, that you know, a problem in one part of the business may have uh, mitigated any problems in the other part of the business. So, uh, you know, is it a confidence booster? Well, it, it could be. It's hard to say. Only time will tell. What do you think, Beverly? Well, I think, again, just as John said, it, it is, um, they are the only, until today, the only two um, independent um, uh, investment banks remaining after, after yeah, the, the others. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so again, we're, we're talking about a situation where they're looking at the models of uh, um, J.P. Morgan Chase mm -hmm. and Bank of America and Citigroup um, as being able to have weathered this storm. So, um, again, I think they're that is the perhaps the right track. Yeah, I would I would add too that in some ways there are strings to government assistance, but part of the reason that some of these things are a problem, we had some of those regulations in the first place, is because we have deposit insurance 
that ensures banks as one particular unique function because of their mm -hmm. role in the payment system. If we now are going to start combining that core function with other kinds of functions without some protections to limit that kind of liability, and it now becomes all de facto government insured, we've got uh, potentially much larger problems. Now maybe what mm -hmm. we've seen in the last couple of weeks is the government wants to step in and perhaps try to take on some of that uh, risk anyway to stabilize the overall financial system, uh, but we have to be very careful when we do that sort of thing. Actually, I think uh, that uh, really goes to, to the next question here that has come in from uh, Stephen Stanley. He says, with the recent bailouts of certain firms along with the proposed bailout being discussed in Congress now for bad loans, is this leading us to a socialized economy? And what would be the long-term effects of that for the common person? Well, let's, let's hope it's not leading us to a socialized yeah. economy. Let's hope that these fixes are designed to get us through this uh, very difficult period and then we can sort of back the government role out. Uh, I think we could, in some sense, view the bank, I mean the government as the lender of last resort in these situations. Mm -hmm. uh, again, to restore confidence in the financial system, uh, there probably was a need for the government to step in. Uh, but for example, some of the opportunities where the government uh, may take ownership position in financial institutions, as was being discussed just today in the U.S. Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would hope there would be some type of sunset provision where if they do that, if they agree to do that, at some point in time we get ourselves out of that uh, so we can go back and let the markets work as they should. Mm -hmm. do, you say that is, do you think then the, the experience of resolving the savings and loan uh, problems that we had with the Resolution Trust Corporation, is that sort of a reasonable model? Do you think, is that, well, I understand you correctly to suggest that that's sort of, it may be, you start, you, you accumulate these assets, then you dispose of them and you get rid of things. Right. And, you know, okay. they're talking about some mechanism that they haven't even really defined yet that would be like the RTC. For those who don't know, after the savings and loan scandal, we had so many failed savings and loans that our U.S. government became the largest real estate company in the world for a period mm -hmm. of years. And again, those of you that remember, there were auctions everywhere, properties, apartments, condos. And so the uh, Resolution Trust Corporation lasted about three years. It was a government, basically real estate agent, to sell off and liquidate these properties and move that inventory. And after it was done, that agency went away. And mm -hmm. so uh, from what I'm understanding, at least, there would be a similar mechanism to handle some of these bad loans, salvage what value can be salvaged, and then move forward from there. So let's hope that's the case. Um, yeah, so, uh, and yeah, to add, so we've, that was a way of disposing of these assets. So they acquired these assets through closing mm -hmm. these thrifts, bundled them up, sold them off in a way that removed that individual risk and uncertainty from each institution, each particular region, took care of the problem, probably reduce then the government losses that were taken as part of underwriting that insurance and so got rid of that financial problem in an expeditious and reasonably efficient way. But mm -hmm. even that, depending on how you measure and what you count, it still cost U.S. taxpayers anywhere from $60 billion to over $100 billion, billion depending on you know, what data source you look at because the yes. savings and loan insurance sure. fund went bankrupt, if you recall. Yes. They ran mm -hmm. out of money and we, as taxpayers, Let's remember, when we keep talking about the government doing this, it's us. Right. We're the taxpayers. We're the ones doing it. Mm -hmm. So all the tax taxpayers are paying off some of the depositors. Yes. And there are losses still taken by sure. some of the folks that own the thrifts in the first place. Right. 
So those folks that say used to own some of these mortgage companies, like uh, one of the ones that I owned a little piece of was Thornburg, uh, Thornburg, Thornburg Mortgage. Uh, they basically had stock that went down from $20 a share to being penny stock being basically uh, not mm -hmm. worth very much. And uh, those stockholders lost a lot of money. So they lost money as well as the people uh, who were on the other sure. side who maybe then tied into these real estate assets, right? So there are right. losses, oh, losses yeah. around and, and, uh, and they'll be shared.